0: Let's start from thinking about what we could do from a microbial perspective to set a child up for a healthy life. And when we started building, we realized that what we were building was really this platform from which we could look at bacteria and how you could take microbes at different life stages, different conditions. We could be the kind of hub or platform where so much of this breakthrough science could get translated and immediately become actionable, and not just for humans, but also for planetary issues.
1: Hello, my beautiful mamas and everyone else. Welcome or welcome back to Mom Light, the podcast dedicated to helping you mamas find more health, vitality, vibrancy, radiance, despite the challenges of mom life, so you can have a domino effect on the health of your children and everyone else around you. Because the truth is, when mama feels amazing, everybody wins. I'm your host, Kanchan Koya, a PhD in molecular biology turned health coach, health and wellness warrior, cookbook author, spice lover, super passionate about the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. I'm so excited about the topic of today's show and our guest. The topic is one that is dear and near to my scientific heart. Today, we are diving deep into the science of the microbiome. Who are we really? Are we bacteria? Are we human? It's a fascinating question that I have pondered and thought about. And how can we leverage our understanding of the science of the microbiome to effectively intervene, whether it's food, whether it's lifestyle, and whether it's probiotics or prebiotics, a very, very hot topic these days. And the perfect person to talk about all of these issues is our guest today. I'm so stoked to introduce you to Ara Katz, the co-founder and co-CEO of Seed, a consumer life science company, pioneering applications of bacteria to improve human and planetary health. Seed, which is the consumer division of Seed Health Incorporated, develops broad spectrum and targeted consumer probiotics from strain-specific research validated in human clinical trials. This was what drew me to Seed as a company. I take their probiotic. I have shared several times on social media why I do. Their science is top-notch. Their scientific advisory board is world-renowned. And I just think they're doing such an amazing job really taking the science seriously in an industry that is sadly pretty unregulated where you don't really always know what you're getting when you're buying a probiotic. But Seed is really upping the bar and super innovative. And I'm just really excited to chat with Ara today not just about Seed but about the microbiome and probiotics in general. Seed's life science approach brings much-needed precision, efficacy and education to the global probiotics market. Ara's breastfeeding experience led her to the microbiome and inspired a personal mission to bridge science and consumer health. Ara is an amazing serial entrepreneur having previously co-founded and served as Chief Marketing Officer of Mobile Commerce Marketplace Spring, She was on the founding team of social commerce company Beachmint, advises various companies across health, tech, and consumer, including Violet Gray, Tamara Mellon, and Stadium Goods, which was recently acquired by Farfetch, and is an angel investor to companies like Mami and Hong Kong based Allies. Ara has been a fellow at the MIT Media Lab Center for Future Storytelling and CCA's Design MBA program. She was named in Marie Claire's The New God, the 50 most influential. Influential women in America. Listed on Business Insider's Silicon Alley Top 100, no big deal, and 36 rock star women in New York City tech, and was recently included in Create and Cultivate's 100 list for STEM. She's basically an amazing mom entrepreneur, and I'm so excited to have her on the show today. Ara was the founding board member of international nonprofit I Am That Girl, a community and movement for any amazing young woman who is looking to find her purpose, lift her voice, and make positive change in her world. How amazing is is that she lives in venice california with her husband and three-year-old son pax without whom seed wouldn't exist she's a mama just like the rest of us i'm so so excited to have her on the show today ara Katz, it's a genuine honor to welcome you to mom light Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. I know how busy life gets as a mom entrepreneur. So it's nine AM in LA, but I'm guessing you've been up for a while because hashtag mom life.
0: <laughs> yes, correct. I always say, yeah, nine AM feels like
1: lunchtime, usually. Oh <laughs> uh, right. How has your morning been with your son who is now three years old? Yes, he's three and a half, which is crazy.
0: Yeah. Our mornings are our time. So by nine o'clock, we've usually gone on an adventure in our neighborhood. We've usually made something made breakfast, had some good conversations about (laughs) all the things in life that he's thinking about this morning was really wanting to understand how ice is made and how things freeze. So we spent a lot of time in the freezer and then took a nice walk
1: in the neighborhood looking for bees. Oh, wow. Bees. Yeah. We're going to talk about bees today because of all the amazing work you guys are doing. That sounds like such a sweet morning and not surprising that he's obsessed with ice. Kids are so amazing. So the first thing I want to ask you is how does a fashion and technology serial entrepreneur become obsessed (laughs) with the microbiome and probiotics and all that amazing stuff?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny you say fashion. I I never kind of self-identified as being in fashion. Although uh, two of the tech companies, one I was on the founding team of and one I co-founded, certainly were kind of squarely in that space. Although it is always interesting how you can be in something and then not think that, at least identify with it or feel that it's part of your identity mostly because my whole beginning of my career and really most of my life has been around storytelling. And I spent most of my early career making movies and in media and entertainment and kind of at the very beginning of tech particularly like the beginning of like when just, you know, the internet was starting to kind of like socially connect people. So, you know, started off coding websites and, you know, at the end of high school and into college, I was at the media lab really thinking about like new technology and the ways that was going to impact storytelling. And then concurrently had a very traditional media life, producing films and running a film fund. And so it's funny because by the time that I got into the startup, like really into my first startup, which was an e-commerce company, I never considered myself a marketer and I never considered myself in fashion. It was always like, what are these avenues and channels through which you tell stories and you cultivate community through that? And of course, technology fundamentally changed like so much about traditional storytelling. But I had always kind of found myself like in some sort of intersection of storytelling and design and technology. And that's kind of always been my through line. And so health and biology were things that my mom died in high school of pancreatic cancer. And I think from a very early age, I was very exposed to pathology and to like what health looks like when you don't have health. And I was also an athlete. And so the body and health and biology were like always one of my biggest passions. Um, And I had always felt that science, you know, even when I was early, like just making movies, I always felt like science had a really bad communication problem. And I feel as I watched the rise of wellness, I felt that there was such an incredible opportunity to do something where you could actually bring science and humans closer together. While I'm so grateful that wellness has created so much of a greater awareness for people of their bodies and of what they eat. I also find that a lot of the information and the marketing and the products do um, partially a disservice in that they reorient you around things that are not true scientifically. And I think there was such a cool opportunity, at least in bacteria and breastfeeding. But I think the microbial world, particularly if you look at where the science is heading, you can see even I think the consumers around the world who think, you know, gut health has become such a thing. Um, there was a really beautiful opportunity to use bacteria, not just to make an impact in health, you know, human and environmental, but also to give people like a fundamentally new lens or kind of a new story through which to understand their bodies. And so it was in some ways, I sometimes say I was compelled to start seeds. But it is funny that you said fashion because I just think of that as that was just like another medium to tell a story.
1: Yeah, so interesting that um, storytelling has been the common denominator. And I think we share that interest very much in bridging the gap between real, genuine science and human health. And I think that's what really drew me to Seed. And the first time I saw you talk about Seed was at a panel in New York at the assemblage with one of the world's leading experts on the microbiome from Columbia (laughs) University. And it was like so fascinating to see all of that come together, you know, in, like you said, the wellness space, which can sometimes feel. Yeah. A little bit disconnected from real science and it's a beautiful thing, but it's also, you know, we really have to empower ourselves as consumers and, um, take charge of our own health and really see where the science is real and where it isn't. So I think that's what's been really compelling about Seed for me as a scientist and as an avid um, and very passionate kind of educator around health. So thank you for starting it and tell us how that came about. So the storytelling aspect is fascinating, but what really led you to say, um, I'm going to start this microbiome (laughs) probiotics company?
0: So I had a miscarriage and resigned very quickly from my previous company, which was really very squarely in the kind of tech and e-commerce world. And I think I felt very existentially misaligned with, I think, a lot of the work that I was doing, Um, although I'm very proud of it. So I know that that, as moms, I think we have to embrace ambivalence. And kind of constantly feeling in conflict with some aspects of ourselves and getting okay with that. Usually it's um, time away from your child and work, but obviously that breaks yeah. down kinds of nuance. And I think, you know, that my miscarriage was really a beautiful kind of turning point, I guess, in my own story, which was a good decision and inflection point in kind of like I have all this experience and I have all this these capabilities to like change behavior and create community and build technology and scale things. Where do you direct that kind of in this lifetime that you could do something that both fulfills me every day, but that I feel nudges the world forward a little bit every day. And so really after that, I got pregnant very quickly. And when I was pregnant, I met my co-founder, Raja, who is an extraordinary human and brilliant in all ways science, but also extraordinary in his ability to kind of translate and make these things feel both intuitive, but also very actionable. And very accessible, but also incredibly inspiring. And of course, when you're pregnant, you know, you're getting bombarded with all kinds of messages and products, and the algorithms and the interweb know you're pregnant, and not to mention the unsolicited advice that you get from many people. And I was always like, where is this information? Like, people would tell you to do things. And I'm like, nothing that I know about biology, about the development of a child in that time of fetus, like nothing that anyone was saying was making sense to me. And then you look at the products and everything people tell you to do. And I was like, is that how the vagina works? Is that how our bodies actually work? And then of course, you're going through this incredible, concurrently going through this incredible experience of growing a human inside of your own body. And I just felt that there was a beautiful opportunity to take what Raja, my experience of Raja, which was we were great translators for one another, and the opportunity, you know, we both kind of found our way to the microbiome in very different ways. He had already been kind of starting to know he was going to move his career towards that, and he comes from the place of translating actually science into products, so either biotherapeutics, which are just with their drugs, um, or consumer innovations, and so, uh, and in, in our case, it, it translates to consumer probiotics. And so, you know, we had spent we spent so much time together, like really, like founder dated in a way that like, I had never done before. But of course, I was pregnant. So it's not the time that you're thinking about... Kind of, you're creating a human. It's not like always the time that you, you think about starting a new company. And really, like, we just spent so much time like, aligning on like, what we wanted to create and what this new world of this bacteria was going to do in terms of fundamentally changing the way we think about everything. And the way we make choices every day, the way we will in the future think about cancer and pathology, but also like today, like literally what we know about the microbiome could impact even what you choose to eat, as as you know very well. And so it was really though, not until after I had my son Pax and I started breastfeeding and it was after about four months, I could only supply about a third of his breast milk. And the more you know about the microbiome, you know about the incredible role that breast milk plays in developing. It's essentially like the fertilizer for your child's microbiome. I mean, a third of the carbohydrates in breast milk are not digestible by the baby's body. They're only food for the bugs, the bacteria in a baby's gut. And so I think, you know, it's, as you know, sometimes like, the more you know, it's like a curse, right? Because it's like I knew even more than most how important breast milk was. And so when I started to look for supplementation options, I was really so dissatisfied by the answers. You know, It was basically a lot of fairly privileged women telling me to just get the very expensive stuff from Europe. And I thought that was both a shitty answer socioeconomically, and it was a really shitty answer scientifically. And that was kind of our aha moment where we're like, we're going to reinvent the formula Let's start from thinking about what we could do from a microbial perspective to set a child up for a healthy life. And when we started building, we realized that what we were building was really this platform from which we could look at bacteria and how you could take microbes at different life stages, different conditions. We could be the kind of hub or platform where so much of this breakthrough science could get translated and immediately become actionable. And not just, as you mentioned earlier, for humans, but also for planetary issues. And so that's kind of how it all started. And and our infant formula probably is about a year to year and a half away.
1: Yeah. So fascinating. Um, I love the name seed because that is indeed what happens when a baby is born. It is such a miracle. Um, So maybe just share with mothers listening who um, I know a lot of them know, but maybe not as much in depth. What happens when a baby is born? ideally vaginally and you know in terms of seeding of the microbiome and then how the breast milk with these myriad carbohydrates like you mentioned, which is really mind blowing. And we don't even necessarily know exactly all of them yet. Is that true? Right.
0: Yeah, well they've been well, I'll start from the beginning of your question. Yes. So seeding, as you said, seeding is the process by which an infant is first exposed to microbes. So there's a lot of controversy. I'm learning that in science there's also drama. Big science drama, drama is that yeah, there's always drama. We're just humans and prone to it. Everything is story, as you know. So in science, there's a lot of controversy as to when that seeding process begins. Some believe that the womb is sterile and some believe that it is not. Some scientists believe that some microbes, some bacteria can migrate from the oral microbiome to the placenta even before birth. But for most of you, really, for all of our years of kind of thinking about the womb, we've always thought about it as sterile, much like the brain, for example. What we are starting to understand is that there may be some even earlier exposure to microbes before birth. So, taking the science drama aside, the majority of seeding happens during a vaginal birth, where as the child comes or as the infant comes through the birth canal, they are basically like washed or seeded with microbes from the vagina. Microbes from fecal matter, which for any mamas listening know exactly what I'm talking about, and microbes from the mother's skin. Um, And then, of course, immediately some environmental microbes, but depending on if you're in a hospital, depending on if the partner, uh, the father, the other partner, uh, immediately holds the child. And so, but the mother load, as they call it, rightfully so, comes really at birth. And so, for a child that's born C section, their microbiome resembles a little bit more of the skin microbiome of the mother versus the vaginal microbiome, there is something called vaginal swabbing, which some people have started doing. One of our scientific advisors is kind of one of the scientists that's leading the charge uh, to understand if that has any positive implications. The FDA actually has been very funny about it um, and have really pushed back about it. But basically it's the idea that if you're born C-section, you take a swab of the vagina and you basically wipe the infant with that swab. As I said, it is not an approved treatment. and In some cases, they do it. But actually, the good news, and, and I think the C-section versus vaginal birth does get a little over-sensationalized because there's a lot of data to suggest that if a child does not have antibiotics within the first couple of years of life... And if the child is breastfed at least a year, you know you can start to see that their microbiomes start to resemble one another—vaginal uh, versus C-section. So, you know, I think a lot of women feel shame, or um, there's been a little bit of hyperbole uh, around that, particularly if uh, C-section happens in the presence of the other two conditions, but at the absence of antibiotics and the presence of breastfeeding. And so, I think um, a lot to still be learned there certainly there are absolutely this critical window of development for an infant. So after that seeding happens, breast milk ends up being kind of the fertilizer for those microbes that are acquired at birth. And that's how this beautiful, diverse ecosystem kind of develops and forms the foundation of the GI system and most importantly, the immune system. And so as those microbes are nurtured, they're also being trained to determine whether or not these different environmental factors and information, which would be anything from food to something in the environment, or uh, for example, microbes from a pet, if a baby lives with a pet, they're starting to get trained to determine like, is this friend or foe? It's kind of like putting, it's like the training wheels for your immune system. Um, And so in infants where there's like high exposure to antibiotics, there's lack of breastfeeding, for example, or no exposure to other, the nurturing of those microbes, I don't want to say it's just breast milk because there's a lot of advancements that are happening with probiotics and obviously formulas that are being developed to think about the development of this microbial ecosystem. and so, yeah, so that's kind of how it happens. And I mean, our bodies are so extraordinary. I mean, even the bacteria on the nipple co-evolved to be there to help a baby, for example, digest like lactose. You know, so it's if you think about the way that like the bacteria in our vagina, our vaginal ecosystems or vaginal microbiomes evolved with the microbes that are on our nipples and then with to the, understand how they interact with the breakdown of like being able to digest breast milk. I mean, it's kind of extraordinary.
1: It really is um, a miracle really yeah. like a marvel yeah. biological marvel yeah. and um, I think a lot of moms listening are probably feeling a bit reassured about that whole you know evolution of the microbiome within the first couple of years despite the C-section I had a C-section I was really upset about it because of this issue I was very aware that the microbial the seeding was going to be compromised and so of course I went looking for probiotics to add to the breast milk. Yeah. And I didn't know which one to buy because you know we'll get into that. There's a million out there, and we don't even know. Like, yeah, I mean, I literally had to just make an informed decision based on a little bit of information that was provided. You know, and then my second birth was a vaginal birth, a VBAC, uh, but this time I was given an antibiotic because I was um, strep B positive, positive. Mm-hmm. and so yeah. I was like, gosh, like it just can never get it right. But you know like you said there is this window of opportunity and so what would be your recommendation given the current state of affairs for moms who are having a hard time breastfeeding and are looking for a way to be more conscious about fostering and nurturing the microbiome in the baby
0: well I would say I mean a, a number of things I think you're absolutely right that some um, exposure to a probiotic um, that's been studied for infants to increase um, you know diversity of the microbiome to I would say certainly you were on the right track in terms of adding a probiotic it's The reason that you're hearing hesitancy in my voice is because there's very little transparency from a lot of these companies and very few of them are testing in the way that we do. Um, But I do believe that there are some companies in Europe that you can access in the US, BioGaia being one of them that I think are probably the furthest along in understanding like probiotics and have really done the work to characterize these microbes and their impact. I think other things, particularly if the child is prior to being able to eat any solid foods, I think of course your diet is incredibly important. There was a study that just in the last few weeks, just understanding like the mother's intake of sucralose and like artificial sweeteners and the downstream effect on the child's and the infant's microbiome. So I would say, of course, how you care for yourself, it's not just what you put in your infant, but how you care for yourself is incredibly important. Exposure to nature, exposure to microbial, like places where there's microbial diversity, having a pet. Again, these moments where um, in a very safe way, you're kind of while the training wheels are on the immune system, you can introduce diverse ecosystems and different microbes and be able to start to train the developing microbiome. So, I would say that's important. I would say the um, cleaning products you use in your home. So, being mindful of that, there was a really interesting study in China about the correlation between specific cleaning products and the propensity for childhood obesity, which I think is really incredible. It's like anything else, It's like, you know, when they get older, you're like, who do I want my child to be exposed to? I mean, in some ways you want to think about it. Hopefully most people want their children to be exposed to a diverse world that they can start to be curious about. And I think in some ways the microbiome is not any different. The antibiotics are incredibly important innovations. I never want to come off as anti-antibiotic. But I would say that if in the event that you don't have to take them, you or the child, wherever they can be optional when they're not needed and particularly not taken prophylactically, and when you really don't know if something's viral, for example, or if it's not of bacterial origin, avoid them. Because we do know that they really do have quite a devastating effect when taken when they're not needed in terms of it, particularly at a very early age when the microbiome isn't what they call steady state.
1: Great, great tips. Thank you for sharing those. So let's take a step back for everyone listening. What is your favorite way to describe what exactly the microbiome is?
0: We like to tell people that, you know, you're a rainforest. You're a coral reef. Um, You know everybody studied the rainforest at some point in like you know elementary school. And so if you think you know you have 38 trillion microorganisms inside of you, which is about three to five pounds of your body. So for everybody trying to lose weight, this is not the weight you want to lose. Or anybody trying to get rid of baby weight, this is the weight you absolutely want in your body. (laughs) And you know in terms of micro, you know human part of your body to non-human part of your body or microbes, you're about 50 50. So when we tell people that you're 50 percent human, if you Think of yourself as a diverse rainforest, you want that rainforest to be as lush and as diverse from a species perspective as possible. And it's a really good metaphor to set up even when you talk about probiotics or when you talk about antibiotics. So if you think about like an antibiotic will come in and like kind of clear the rainforest, not dissimilar. Like we always say, you know, a lot of the things that are happening out in the world, and I'm sure you're very aware of this because of your work, which is, you know, the rise of autoimmune disease, the rise of type two diabetes, obesity. I mean, these are all non communicable diseases that we're dying of, which we've never in human history died at the rate that we currently die of non communicable diseases. You know, a flu would come along and wipe out seventy million people, those were Of course, contagious, and I think it's really important to think. So, if you think about a rainforest and the way we learn about the environment, you know, a lot of what's happening in our microbiomes and this beautiful, diverse ecosystem is what you would call deforestation. It's kind of the extinction of species that have been historically incredibly important in maintaining this diverse and healthy ecosystem. And so, the best way you can understand your microbiome is it's what keeps you a rainforest, a healthy rainforest. Um, And you know, you can look at like some of these diseases, and we always say it's kind of like the climate change of our insights, So all these environmental factors, you know, diet and the overuse of antibiotics, the decrease of breastfeeding, um, the use of all these chemicals, environmental toxins. I mean, everything that's happening outside to the environment that we can see with our human eyes is a great analogy and metaphor for what's happening currently to our insights, And it's a beautiful idea, of course, in some ways, because as we talk more about it in this conversation, we can talk about the positive things you can do for that rainforest or that ecosystem. But it is important to know how these factors that are happening out in the world the climate change, I think we try to think of ourselves as very separate. We say, you know, environmental issues, and then we say human health. It's actually fundamentally all the same thing.
1: Thinking about it as a rainforest or a coral reef is really beautiful. And I think one of the things that drew me to the partnership with Seed was the Seed University and how um, science-based so much of your product engineering is and your messaging is. So, Something that I learned and I you know, feel like I know a lot because I'm very sciencey and I enjoy this stuff, but something that I learned that was fascinating was we tend to be scared of bacteria. So a lot of people may have this kind of squeamish reaction to the idea that we're 50% bacteria. And also just learning that 99% of the microbes on the planet are actually not harmful or pathogenic, mm-hmm. but that's how we've Kind of learn to associate or learn to identify with um, microbes you know, as bad things. So really seeing these um, co-inhabitors of our ecosystem as kind of helpful, synergistic, symbiotic, beautiful things.
0: Yeah, I mean look, <laughs> this is where the activist in me comes out. I mean humans, for some reason, and of course you probably know this from your work in biology, which is like self-preservation is how we persist as a species, right? So, for whatever reason, sociologically, we pretty much always need to demonize somebody else to preserve ourselves. So something has to be bad for us to be good, um, or for us to be okay. Um, and you you know you see some elements of this in nature, and of course, there are some bacteria that will kill you. I think people don't like nuance, right? And so I look at the even harder part of it is that in some bacterium, some conditions may be harmful. And in others may be helpful. And by the way, humans are the same, I think. And so it is scary. I think it's also scary because we can't see it. And so I think part of it, and you can look to any science fiction for evidence of how humans project all of their fears onto things that you can't see. It's a world that you can't see with our human eyes. So I think it's, it also evokes some fear. Of course, there are bacterial infections that have wiped out many peoples and populations. So of course, it's not that we should again say that something like antibiotics are all bad because in the right situation, under the right conditions, they will you know, save your life. But we have... As a result of being obsessed, and you know, humans just we go to the, especially in Western culture, we go to the extreme of anything. So, one bacteria, you know, a couple of few species or strains of bacteria cause one thing, and we've decided that they're all bad. And we've spent, you know, the better part of the last over a century basically figuring out how to kill it. So, you have Joseph Lister, who created like Listerine. So, if you think we've basically been wanting to kill the microbes in our mouth for a long time, we have bleach and Clorox, and everything's antimicrobial. We are obsessed with antimicrobial microbial hand. And so as a result, again, not dissimilar to what we've done to our planet, we become obsessed with getting rid of weeds. Look at what that's done to now our ecosystem. So we have glyphosate, You have the impact of uh, all of the, not dissimilar to how we thought like weeds are the biggest pest because of course it gets in the way of thriving crops, but we don't think about these things from like the larger ecosystem and what the downstream effects of that are doing. You decrease the biodiversity of crops and you take out all the other plants, you lose the bees people then go the whole other way, which is like, well, now I'm going to just take spoonfuls of dirt and put it in my mouth. (laughs) And so, you know, it's so interesting. It's funny. We kind of tend to only be able to make sense of things if something else has to be otherized everything. You see that with race. You see that with religion. We see it with biology. You see it with science. You see it. And then, so of course it all comes from fear, which if you can have empathy for, you know, hopefully you can come at that from a place. If you think that education is potentially a beautiful neutralizer that can kind of heal some, of that or at least push out the fear enough that you can say okay what do i need to learn and is this grounded in something and should i use antibiotics when i really need them but do i need to like bleach my entire life also we're coming now at a place where the science is starting to say like actually all these other antimicrobial things or you know, use antimicrobials when you need it, but there are certain areas where they may have and, and currently are really not serving us and haven't served us because of, if you look at the rate of all these diseases, a lot of scientists believe it's a high correlation with the fact that we've killed the microbial diversity on our insides, too, which is leading to all kinds of disease.
1: Yeah. The connections between the microbiome and its integrity and pretty much every organ system in the body is really mind blowing. And the research is just coming out at frantic pace. So fascinating. So given um, the sort of doomsday scenario, which is real and important to be aware of, what can we do to foster a diverse rainforest coral reef within Mm -hmm. us?
0: I would say one of the most, and you would probably agree with this, the most impactful thing you can do, which a child that can't eat, Uh, obviously the, the one major piece of advice that's different is what you eat we're very clear while we do sell probiotics and while we develop products for human health, I mean, really, we'll tell anybody, like, if you had the choice between buying something from us and eating 100 grams of fiber a day, <laughs> please go do that instead. Um, and truthfully, I think it is a, a, the, the intake of fiber is incredibly important, of course, you know, from a dietary perspective. And certainly, if you think about that, most of you know, fiber is food for your bacteria. And so that I would say, if you thought about the way that you wanted to maintain that rainforest, plants are probably the top way that you do that and a diverse amount of them. So I think one thing that happens a lot in wellness and health is you get into routines. And so the American Gut Project actually published like their second big wave of research. And one of the cool things that came out of it was that the diversity of your rainforest equals The diversity of the plants and fruits that you eat every week. So, I think they found that 30 diverse plants uh, correlated with the highest diversity of a microbiome, uh, which I thought was really interesting. So, plants and the diversity of plants is probably my number one. Number two is what I said earlier, which is, you know, take an antibiotic if you need it. You know, I think a lot of people are like, they just start to feel sick and they just go call their doctor for a Z pack, for example. So, obviously, wherever that can be avoided is awesome. Be in nature as often as possible. That does not mean you have to eat dirt, but uh, it does mean that being exposed to those diverse microbial ecosystems is a good thing. Um, have a pet. So being exposed to those microbes again has shown to be a good thing. Be mindful of the toxins in the environment. So for example, um, I mentioned cleaning products earlier, but that, that extends to you know other areas that you're gonna spend a lot of time. They're now even seeing that the cleaning products that they use in factories where food is prepared impacts has downstream effects on people's microbiome. so and of course the factory workers. Uh, so that's another piece. Um, I think sleep is really important microbes have their own circadian rhythm actually uh, and are related to our own um, so sleep is incredibly important um, the microbiome responds poorly to crowded places uh, which is interesting so stress um, is something you know and again most things that I'm going to say are not mind-blowing <laughs> because they of course relate to other parts of our body but when you start to look at the root of where some of that science came from there's a microbial component to a lot of those as well and the last one I would say that's incredibly important Important is the not just avoidance of antibiotics, but where you don't have to take NSAIDs. For anyone who doesn't know, and or some people say NSAIDs, uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, which are like Advil uh, and Tylenol. There's a lot of research to suggest that they have a lot of impact on the microbiome, um, and I would say extending that out also that when you take medication, know that most medicines have never been tested to understand their impact on the microbiome. So just moderation and and taking things when you need to, I think we have a tendency to be take these things preventively um, when they're maybe not necessary. Uh, And by the way, not just Western medicine, but even things like oregano oil. I mean, oregano oil is used as an antibiotic in livestock. So I think like we somehow believe that because something is natural, the antimicrobial properties won't be just as damaging, but that's not true. And so I think we tend to just walk into that Whole Foods aisle or to that more Eastern doctor and just assume that like, oh, it must be natural and therefore it must be better. Uh, And so I think, you know, just really kind of getting educated on that things that are antimicrobial are antimicrobial. Uh, If it kills microbes, it kills microbes. It's not like oregano oil goes into your microbiome and it's like, you know what, I'm just going to kill the ones that seem to be causing you to have a little bit of flu-like symptoms today. Even forms of CBD and THC are antimicrobial properties. And so when you think about that, that has impact on the integrity of your gut barrier and other unintended consequences. And then I'd say the last piece is also your skin, which is kind of the next frontier of microbiome research, which is thinking a little bit about what do we put on our skin? Because that microbial ecosystem is a part of both your immune system, but also part of how uh, your skin responds to stressors, um, both internally from your microbiome, but also externally. And I'm sure you know from like, you know, everything from eczema, psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, um, and acne, you know, all have some microbial implications. Um, And so that's another big area that uh, I think we'll start to learn more about in the coming years.
1: Fantastic tips, and a really good point about the natural remedies, which I talk a lot about because a lot of spices, for example, do have antimicrobial properties. but and somehow we think when it's natural, more is more and more is better. So you know indiscriminately using it when you don't need it. Um, and like you said, they don't know to distinguish between the pathogens and the yeah. friendly bugs, so
0: they don't know that you got a whole foods versus your versus PDS.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Love love that point. Really important. And also the point that you raised about how it's easy to fall into routine, especially in the wellness community. You see a lot of meal planning, which is great. I instituted a challenge on social media where I challenged my followers to introduce one new vegetable or fruit a week that they've never tried and that scares them, and then just Google it and say like. How do I cook this like yeah. Jerusalem artichoke? Or, yeah. you know. Um, so yeah, really, really amazing tips. Um, let's talk about probiotics. And I want to talk about the seed probiotic, the symbiotic, which I have started taking as of four days ago. Um, ah. I'm loving it. Like I've had no negative side effects. So Oh
0: great. Are, are you yeah. on a full full dose or are you just one? Oh yeah. Wow.
1: So I started the two. So I've always taken probiotics and I will just share with my audience. The reason I was drawn to seed uh, was after hearing you on the panel and the fact that you guys really have taken a very science centric approach, which really appealed to me, which I hadn't seen in other probiotics companies. And um, so tell us a little bit about probiotics in general and what some of the biggest problems are with the probiotics industry and I guess how seed is different.
0: So our chief scientist uh, on our consumer division uh, of SEED is Dr. Gregory Reed, who actually authored the scientific definition of probiotic for the World Health Organization in the UN in 2001. And what it says is that it's a microorganism that when administered in adequate dosage has an effect on the human host. And what that means is that it is in the right dosage under the correct fermentation conditions um, when administered in a clinical trial at the strain-specific level, so you know exactly which microorganism it is, not the species, and that's important when I do a little label hacking with you, it has shown to have an impact in the human body. The term probiotic in the United States versus like, for example, most countries in Europe is not regulated. So there's a scientific term, which is the one that we adhere to, And then there's the term that's used for the most part on everything in this country from tortilla chips, to shampoo, to every fermented food, to kombucha, to (laughs) the chocolate that you buy at point of sale, um, to pretty much like everything. Uh, And then of course, increasingly on other things that you put on your body, like skincare, skincare um, and, uh, and even cleaning products. Uh, and even, uh, I think we recently, we saw sheets and pillows that were probiotic. And so if you know bacteria, you understand how hard they are to, uh, you know, how sensitive they are specifically to like light and heat and temperature and moisture, you know, that it's almost impossible. First of all, that any of those products, um, the bacterial integrity is there, meaning that the microbe Microorganisms are alive or viable to be able to have an impact, but most of those products are not even telling you necessarily what strains are in the product. Um, most of them are just licensing strains that you know, or most, actually species in some cases where they don't even tell you what the strain is. So it's like saying it's like buying a dog but not knowing you got a golden retriever. And literally just living with a dog and putting a dog every day in your life, taking it for a walk, but never knowing what kind it is, which in biology, I'm sure you remember from your academic work, like, you know, it's this not knowing the strain uh, is literally like kind of putting something blindly into your body, which is something that we don't recommend when it comes to bacteria. So the problem is that the term itself is just misappropriated um, in this country and not regulated, although we do think that that's going to be changing while we hate being the people that say that kombucha is not a probiotic um, because most people are like oh why are you you know shitting all over we're like we're not you know we do- <laughs> all we're trying to do is create some scientific integrity because trust me in the future when your child has an issue or if you you know looking down the road for women's health fertility there will be probiotic drugs so our position is look if the term becomes so diluted that nobody believes in it how will the real science ever be able to really reach the people that need it most, and how it will be taken seriously? And we know that public opinion impacts even scientific funding sometimes. Um, and so we really are trying to steward at least the integrity of the term. Now that doesn't mean that kimchi or kombucha are bad for you. It doesn't mean that there aren't some other benefits from like lactic acid fermentation, for example. What it means is that they chose strains of bacteria that are good for fermentation. It doesn't mean they chose strains that have been demonstrated or that they've done the work to put them through clinical trials to demonstrate any of the effects that they are claiming. And I think that's kind of the big distinction. So that's the term. In terms of what we do, we only work at the strain level. We look at strains that have been shown and or that we have shown in clinical work to have a specific impact on the human body. And sometimes we also look at other compounds. So, like pre probiotics are bacterial strains that have been shown to have an impact. Our first product, which is a symbiotic, we also look at prebiotics, which are compounds that can either feed beneficial bacteria in your gut or they're compounds that break down to create compounds that are good for your body, like metabolites, or in our case, um, a compound that comes from pomegranate skin called punicalgan gets biotransformed into uh, something called urolithin A, which I don't don't want to get too technical, but it's important to make the distinction because a lot of people, uh, what we call the the label readers in your audience, will certainly know the term prebiotic, but it's important to know that there are a couple of different types of prebiotics in terms of how they behave in the body. And so for us, I mean, that specificity is everything. Um, And especially if you look at where probiotic research, is heading and how we're going to start to look at bacteria for our bodies, for our children, um, for our vaginal micro ecosystems, for everything from fertility to solving urinary tract infection uh, and bacterial vaginosis and preterm birth. I mean, these we have to align on the terms if they're going to be taken seriously in the future.
1: Yeah. I love the prebiotic-probiotic combo. I love the point about the stability of the probiotics going through the GI tract because it's very often like you said, it's unregulated. We don't know what we're taking. We do some research. We find a brand we like, but you guys have tested the stability of your probiotic in the way that yes. it's formulated, the patented kind of composition of the outer layer. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of that is very cutting edge and kind of incredible. So, and then the fact that you said like the strains that are in your formulation have been tested in several peer reviewed studies to have effects, not just on gut health, but potentially other aspects of health. Yes. Uh, Because that's an important point too. We think of somehow microbiome is gut health and that's it. But we know that there's connections with cognitive health, um, obviously the brain and the whole gut brain axis and sure. um, the second brain as it's called, yes. <laughs> you know, but the production of butyrate and like inflammation and mm-hmm. I mean, just so yes. many um, kind of pleiotropic systemic effects. So yes. um, I think that's an, the other thing that drew me to the symbiotic was the fact that there are studies backing the choice of strains. So yeah, really amazing. Do you feel like um, the next step for you guys is to take the actual formulation and do some sort of trial with that? Is that... Yeah.
0: So it's a great question. So we have two clinical trials starting soon. One is with a specific patient population and the other is actually more measuring some biomarkers for mostly otherwise healthy individuals. And we're also going to be filing an IND for the daily symbiotic, which means that it will be considered a product that could be studied as a drug.
1: Amazing. Um, is there going to be one coming out for kids? Yes. Okay. Because I'm always like, because, yes. you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, he's a C section baby. I mean. Yeah.
0: No, no, of course. <laughs> yes. It's something that um, look out in the next, uh, probably, I would say, in the next six to nine months for both children and infants.
1: Amazing. Well, you know, I'm just going to say thank you um, for founding this company, for making it so science driven and for we didn't even get to touch on. And I would love for you to touch on that, actually, um, the other kind of work that you're doing with leveraging the power of microbes and what we know about them for planetary health, especially with bees. It was really inspiring and mind-blowing. So I'm sure my audience would love to know yes. what's going on there.
0: Of course. I would love to talk. I'm glad you said that because I was going to say, wait, what well, can we talk about the bees? So I'm sure most of your audience knows. I imagine most people know on some level what is happening to honeybee populations around the world. Most people attribute it to colony collapse disorder, which is kind of one of the more prevalent conditions that are impacting honeybee populations, as well as what's called American fulbrow disease, particularly in the larvae. So they actually die before they really become bees. So what we've done is uh, one of our fellows, Brendan Daisley, who works in Gregory Reed's lab actually in Canada, is spearheaded this project for us under Seed Labs, which is where we do all of our environmental work. And we have a probiotic that actually gets administered to bees in the form of a bio-patty. It almost looks like a big pancake um, that gets put in the hives. Um, and there are strains of bacteria that increase the immune resistance to neonicotinoid pesticides, which just means most pesticides that are used, they are mostly illegal now in Europe, but they are still used here and in other parts of the world. And you can imagine if you heard me say it correctly, you heard the word nicotine inside of that, which means that actually it has a nicotinic effect. In bees, So they get basically like almost like addicted. And so the probiotics actually increase their immune resistance um, to these pesticides and allow the populations to persist. And we're seeing really interesting data so far. Um, We expanded the research more recently in the last six months to California. So we have a number of almond farmers now testing with it. We had a paper come out last year. We have another paper coming out this August on it. Um, And we're just going to continue to... We we have found a number of partners around the world. We'll we'll continue that work. Uh, We open source the IP um, to any farmers that want to access to, um, the bio patty and to the strains, um, and make that fully available for people to also use in their farms or hives.
1: Amazing. Um, yeah. really nudging the world forward in, uh, in a new, trying. yes, trying. So how do you do it all as a mom, as an entrepreneur, um, someone trying to maintain a semblance of kind of health and vitality? <laughs> oh man, uh, that's a
0: great question. That's a whole other, probably a whole other podcast too, but, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a question that I always like, I almost always veer away from, uh, meaning the how you do it all. I don't, you know, I don't think anybody does it all, like whether they have kids or not. Hopefully you'll appreciate this from like a Buddhist perspective. I find defining the term all to be like a source of suffering for people. So they basically believe what they should be doing and then they live every day as if they're not doing what they should be doing or not doing enough of it. Harvey Karp, you might know Harvey Karp, he, you know, he started the new crib and he wrote Happiest Baby and Happiest Toddler. And he's like a pediatrician. Yes. I, and I've become friendly with him over the years. And when I was just about to have my son, he goes, whatever you do, don't shoot on yourself. I think we all do that to some extent, but the shooting, like I should be doing this, I should be doing that. I, I truthfully, I do a lot because I'm a very prolific worker and I've always been like a cranker and I'm good at time management, but like whether I had kids, a child or not, I think that at least way of working would would be there. But for the most part, the way that I do it all is I try not to be obsessed with what all means. Um, And I also think that the amount of time we spend worrying about what all means is time that we could spend doing things.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Get away from the FOMO. Amazing advice. There is is no such thing as all. That's a great perspective, but you do have a a morning routine that kind of grounds you for the day. So what what is that?
0: the sacred time with my dad was like from like five a m to like, you know, seven it's probably like seven a.m, seven thirty-eight. Um, and I have a, a very similar thing with my son. Uh, and I think that really, you know, I mean, if I'm lucky, I get up a little bit earlier than him and I, I can meditate, although I do usually guide meditation at night too. And that is really helpful. But I really it's my time with him. I think it's like I try and be even Despite the fact that we do, you know, we do a lot of work with Europe and a very, a lot of time zones. So it's not like I don't have the luxury of a lot of people who say like, oh, emails don't really start for me around. Now. <laughs> I kind of wake up to a flow of Australia and a flow of Europe. So I have to be extra vigilant um, about like my phone and stuff. And so really it's my time with him. We paint, we do a lot of our projects. We always take walks in our neighborhood. We go and sometimes we have, we go and have breakfast sometimes or we just make, you know, we make like smoothies in the morning and we freeze whatever is left um, So he can have popsicles later and that, you know, so it depends on the morning, but usually there's some sort of art activity or like we get to create something and we talk a lot about about things he wants to learn about. And then we usually take a walk around the neighborhood and like do something fun, which is really awesome. So by the time I get to my office, I've basically (laughs) already had an art class and a walk and a lot of fulfillment,
1: I guess. That's so beautiful to incorporate him into your morning routine because I think sometimes, you know, we can feel like sort of stressed out by the mom role and we need yes. space before the kids wake up. Um, that's something that's been coming up a lot with the other yes. mom guests is everybody feels like just waking up a little bit before the kid yes. is like a game changer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just to orient yourself and I also um one of the things that I did was I
0: live four blocks from our office. So um, I have the luxury really been very mindful of like how we've set this company up. And I knew I really didn't want to create a lot of stress for myself. And I think one of the ways that I can optimize my time with him is by having Seed uh, near my home and living close to our company because it allows me a lot of flexibility and allows him to come here and feel that it's not such a separate part of my life.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. You could do that. Well, Ara, it has been such an honor, such a pleasure. You've shared so much amazing information and I'm a huge fan of Seed and a huge fan of the product. And I know uh, my audience is going to be very interested and intrigued. And you guys are offering a really generous discount for first time subscribers, um, 15% off with code MOMLIGHT. The link will be in the show notes. Um, But yeah, really, really thank you for coming on and for sharing the story and good luck with all the new projects and the trials. Can't wait for the kids probiotic and also the infant formula. I know a lot of moms are probably eagerly waiting for that. So yes, we will talk soon.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Thanks for all your questions.